Last week, a middle schooler who lives down the street from me was practicing a flag routine in his yard. I watched as he spun, flipped, and tossed the flag in the air, making it whip in the wind. It brought back some of my happiest memories from high school. When you're a band kid, you have to be dedicated. From band camp to practices to football games to competitions to concerts, you're always doing something. Between my sister and me, my family spent so much time on band time that even now, occasionally on a crisp October Friday, I'll find myself wondering what time I'm supposed to report for that night's football game. And whatever you decide to pursue with your life, whether it has to do with music or not, band is something that always sticks with you. I'm Erica Grotto. This is Survived By. This one time, this one time, I don't want to be. In 1997, Anne McGinty was asked to compose a piece for the Montoursville High School Band in memory of the three band members who had died in the crash of TWA 800. She was brought into the project by Ron Rowe, then the president of J.W. Pepper, the largest sheet music retailer in the United States. Profits from the sale of the piece, as well as McGinty's royalties, would be donated to a scholarship fund for Montoursville students pursuing music. It was something McGinty had done before— by her estimates, she's written close to 250 band pieces over a period of three decades, including several commissions. This should have been just another project. When I'm involved in writing, I am totally involved. I've been known to get up in the middle of the night and change a rhythm. It doesn't stop. It's just like a loop that plays constantly. And when the piece is done, and I know that it's done, and it's the best I can do, is done. But it didn't happen that way this time, and McGinty is still trying to figure out why. When I reached out to her for an interview, I knew very little about the piece. I'd heard it before, but I was out of high school and the band in 1997 when the piece debuted at a memorial concert. I thought it would be interesting to learn about her process and the features of the music. She had so much more to tell me. There's something about Montoursville that hurts me at such a gut level so that when I got your message, it all just imploded inside me. And I went, what is that? I said, this, this woman has no idea what she's starting. <laughs> and I said, I'm figuring about... Um, an hour and a half to two hours of just having her mind blown at what went on while she was off at college. McGinty's first correspondence with the Montoursville band director, Dennis Carpenter, was in September of 1997. It began with a conversation about McGinty composing a piece of music for the Montoursville band, but it quickly became something more. We talked on the phone. He sent a zillion emails and snail mail stuff. Um, he asked the kids to anonymously write about the three girls that were in the band, that were in the French club that died in the crash. And a couple of them did. They were really, really quite something. Mr. Carpenter, I don't care how old I am, I can't call my teacher by his first name, had asked McGinty to include a section in the piece featuring the instrument each student had played. In his first letter to her, dated September 16, 1996, he told her a bit about each one. Monica Weaver had been a flute player and an excellent student who was very involved in her church. 
Some of the students shared that she'd recently started dating someone before she died. She loved a song with good lyrics, and she was dedicated to her family. After the crash, someone found a prayer she had written and had it printed on bookmarks. I have one in my files. Julia Grimm, known to her friends as Julie, had played percussion. Mr. Carpenter described her as shy and introverted in a group, but outgoing and funny one-on-one. My own memory, even though I didn't know her well, is that she was always surrounded by friends. And it's one of the great honors of my life that I was asked by my high school choir director to sing at her funeral. Michelle Bolin was in the color guard of the marching band and had taken up trombone for concert band. Mr. Carpenter didn't say this in his correspondence, but I'm sure he talked her into that because he himself was a trombone player. She was also in the choir and on the cheerleading squad, and she loved to dance. Attached to the letter is a piece of music Mr. Carpenter had written in her memory. He started emailing McGinty on a regular basis about music, about school, about the band kids. He wrote, McGinty said, because there were things he just couldn't say out loud to anyone in Montoursville. In February of 1997, McGinty traveled with Ron Rowe and a few others to Montoursville, where she finally met Carpenter and the band in person and worked with them on her piece. It's called Tis a Gift, and it's based on the Shaker melody Simple Gifts. In the middle is the section Carpenter requested, featuring each girl's instrument. Denny was nervous and the kids were scared and the principal came and the superintendent came and all of a sudden we had all these adults and I wanted to be with the kids. And I wasn't going to conduct the concert, but I thought I would conduct and talk about that little trio section. And if you listen carefully, the flute sounds like it's almost playing Swing Low Sweet Chariot coming for to carry me home. The trombone um, is doing little bits and pieces from Simple Gifts. And the wind chimes are providing this ethereal background. I read through all of the emails from Denny that I had printed out. And he was literally telling me stuff that he never, ever told his wife. So when I decided to start with, at that rehearsal with the trio part, Gretchen, his wife said, why did you choose to include that? And of course, I've got this huge rush of adrenaline, which I still remember. And I'm thinking, oh my God, they don't, they can't talk about any of this. And I made up, and I just called it BS in my notes because I made up something that satisfied her and kept her quiet while we did worked on this piece. And um, it was the same with the kids. They could say things to me and they knew I wasn't going to do anything with it. I was going to keep it. It was like a sacred bond of some sort. McGinty kept detailed records about the project, including printouts of email correspondence with Carpenter, as well as with a friend she confided in, worrying about the many what-ifs that could come to pass when Tis a Gift premiered. She made notes about what pieces the band had played in previous concerts and how many players there were of each instrument. They say things like flutes, six or so, strong. Sax, Alto, very strong. No oboes. She also made a note about the band director's wishes for the premiere of the piece. Doesn't want Media Fest for concert, she wrote. Booth upstairs to film from, away from parents. On April 7th, 1997, the band performed a memorial concert. 
McGinty flew to Pennsylvania from her home in Arizona and drove three hours in a rented van along with seven others from the J.W. Pepper headquarters in Paoli near Philadelphia. Along with Carpenter and his wife, Gretchen, who was the band's percussion instructor, the group headed out for a dinner, and after a quick walk to clear her head, McGinty was ready. There was a TV person in shocking pink with blonde hair, and I had on red and black. So we tried not to ever do anything on camera at the same time. But she had been vetted, and she had been very kind and supportive and non-intrusive earlier after the crash. And so she was allowed with her camera man. And that was one of the things I'd worry about, whether there'd be camera coverage and somebody sticking a microphone in the parent's face. So you can picture the auditorium with the wide row and then the little areas off to the side, but the big wide row that faces front and all of the parents and relatives, who knows who all was there, filled the fifth row. And I went down the fourth row and individually met all of them. There were a few tears. There were a lot of hugs. This is before they even heard the piece. I don't know who I became, but this was, I don't know. <laughs> I just, I cannot put a name on it to this day. Um, and that was, that was emotional. And there were blue and gold ribbons on the aisle. And we were in row 10. And I had a good view of all of the parents. And the first half of the concert, I don't remember. Denny wanted to play my Pavan, um, Ravel Pavan for a Dead Princess. And thank God he only called it Pavan on the program. Just before concert time, one of McGinty's what ifs came to pass when an uninvited news crew showed up. A news crew came barging in right before the concert. And they were, according to my notes I read yesterday, they were from Wilkes-Barre and they did not have permission. They were rude, offensive, and nobody was doing anything. And I got up and threw them out. After intermission, the band finally played to the gift. The parents knew which section of the piece was for which daughter. They all knew. So I must have done the musical job well, portraying their daughters. But oh gosh, did they hurt after that concert. At the end of the section written for the girls, there are three loud gongs. McGinty calls them death knells. One parent told her he heard them as the children's spirits rising toward heaven. Just after the death knells, when you think your heart's going to break, well, I think my heart's going to break, Michelle goes dancing off, just dancing and prancing. And I, she saved it for me because if she hadn't come dancing, I don't know where that piece would have gone. The band presented McGinty with a plaque and a gift, a miniature yellow rose bush. The parents gave her a T-shirt emblazoned with the Forever in Our Hearts logo Montoursville residents had begun wearing the previous summer. 
And as quickly as it began, the concert was over and everyone headed to the school cafeteria for a reception. I smiled as McGinty told me about how the band moms had filled the place with food because I can picture it so clearly. These were the moms who had once chaperoned my bus trips, cheered for us at our competitions, fed us during band camp. These are happy, cherished memories for me. But when I talked with McGinty, I realized how hard it must have been for them and their kids to go through that school year. And the worst part was, no one was willing to say how hard it was, except to the one person they all assumed was a neutral party, Anne McGinty. And no one, even the colleagues who had come on the trip with her, considered how this event would weigh on her. We had a table and a gift basket with blue and gold ribbon um, for the scholarship fund. And I thought that all those people were lined up for food, but they were lined up for me to sign programs and meet and talk and hug and cry and laugh and, oh my. And this went on and on and on. And, and who would you like me to sign the program to? And they go, oh, two. And I'd write the name down. And I didn't have much to say. Was so-and-so in the band? No, so-and-so was in the crash. I don't know where I got the words, I, but I, it happened over and over and over. That point when you realize that nobody's talking to anybody, they're keeping all of this stuff inside and letting it loose with me. It was like I was a non-person at the end. I couldn't believe that just out of common courtesy, no one would ask, was that difficult? How did you feel about the concert? Um, I saw a lot of cheers with people in line. Um, anything that acknowledged what had gone on for the previous, well, it would have been four hours by that point. Um, but there was nothing. It was just almost like it never happened and everybody went on. So I just buried mine. After the reception, McGinty said her final goodbyes to the students in the band room. A few were planning to take a concert program to the cemetery. They talked about moving on, and then it was time to go. Seven other people in that van, no one asked what I'd been doing for two hours. They were chatting and eating and laughing. And I had just gone through probably one of the most emotional evenings of my life. It was so emotional, and I never figured out what my role was except... How did composer go from composer to whatever I became? And so the only thing I could do was just put all that stuff away. I came home and typed out 20 pages, double-spaced, about this whole thing. Do, do you do that every time you have a visit to a, a place and you've composed a piece of music? Or? Absolutely never. <laughs> oh, really? It was nine months of such emotional turmoil that I needed to get it out somewhere. When my interview with McGinty ended, I was shaking. Of all the stories I was planning for this podcast, this one should have been the most straightforward, the most simple, but it wasn't simple at all. When I went back and listened to Tis a Gift again, I heard those death knells and I burst into tears. I was finally beginning to understand that the ripple effects of these events go further than any of us can imagine. And you don't always get a Michelle dancing off into heaven to make things better. 
Within days, I received a package in the mail containing almost everything McGinty had kept all these years. In it were photos, concert programs, a cassette tape of the concert, and those notes McGinty mentioned. The write-ups from the students were in it, as were the printouts of all those emails. Reading the messages from my band director felt a little like peeking inside a teacher's diary. But I was very happy to do so, because I can never ask the man himself. Dennis Carpenter passed away in September 2021. I hadn't seen him in years. In fact, the last time I remember talking with him was the day after the crash. I was walking out of the vigil in the high school gym and ran into him as he chatted with a couple of students about the upcoming band camp. I thought it was strange they were talking about something so normal. I realize now he was putting on an act for our benefit, just like everyone in town continued to do for each other for years to come. A few months ago, I talked with Mrs. Carpenter on the phone. Again, she's a grown-up, so I could never call her Gretchen. And we spent a few hours catching up. With McGinty's permission, I'm going to send her all the emails Mr. Carpenter wrote back in 1997. I think she and her daughters will enjoy reading them. She said he wouldn't have enjoyed being put in the spotlight like this. I can see that. In fact, I'm sure he'd smile and roll his eyes at me if he could hear this. But for all he bottled up his feelings at the time, I think some things need to be said now. In a January 1997 email, he wrote, Of course, my wife and daughters are very important to me, but I really care about my students. Even when I'd really like to let them have it for something dumb, I still have to walk away from them sometimes and laugh where nobody can see or hear. I have a hard time staying mad at them, even when I should be. I try to give as much of my time to them as I can, in or out of school, and I've considered them to be one of the most precious gifts I've ever received for some time now. When I read that to his wife, she was quiet for a moment. Then, through tears, she simply said, That's Denny. McGinty hasn't returned to Montoursville. It's unlikely she ever will. But she kept a few things in remembrance of her time there. The rose bush is still blooming. Is strong.